My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And today we're going to be talking about risk-taking in the context of your career. As we've been talking about this fall, the great resignation has people taken off leaving their jobs, looking for new things, or you you may not have quit your job, but you're like, what's next for me? It never sort of feels like those things are clear. You know, the old Steve Jobs quote, everything looks completely sensible when you look at it in the back mirror, the rear view mirror, but when you're doing the things, it can be very confusing. I can tell you that from my own experience. And that's why I have the perfect guest to discuss this because my guest, Sukinder Singh Cassidy, is really thoughtful about risk-taking in the context of a career. Now, Sukinder is a leading technology executive and entrepreneur. She's a board member and investor with more than 25 years of experience founding and helping to scale companies, and that includes Google, where she was one of four presidents, Amazon, and Yodli. Most recently, she served as the president of StubHub, which sold in 2020 for more than $4 billion right before the pandemic and thrived under her leadership. She has been named one of Elle's power women, one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, and she is one of the top 100 people in the Valley, according to Business Insider. It's a lot of very good honors, very impressive. She is also the author of the new book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. Now, in today's episode, you're going to learn about how you can stop seeing every decision like it's life or death and instead start to see decisions as a series of important decisions that all go together, but you don't have to freak out every time you have to make one. We're also going to talk about why the hero's journey, you know, the old, oh, I struggled and now I'm successful, why that is a trap. And finally, we're going to talk about this concept pre-morteming, which I hadn't heard of, and so I love it, which is looking at what might go wrong when you are making a decision and setting yourself up in case that thing, in fact, does go wrong. Now, my small ask of the day is an easy one. Go to Instagram, that's Patrick J. McGinnis, or Twitter at PJ McGinnis, or send me an email to letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com and ask me a question. I love answering reader questions on Full Mondays. We've been getting some good ones. We need more because, you know, every week I want to answer a cool question, an interesting question, a hard question. Stump me. Bring it on. So go and send me one, please. I would really appreciate it. And now onto the interview. And because Sukinder is such an expert in making high stakes decisions, I was looking forward to asking her the question I always start with. What's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? Uh, I think it's probably one that um, you wouldn't expect, which is who I married. Um, you know, when you think about big life decisions, we think our partners are there for all of our personal lives, but the reality is they're there on our professional journeys, particularly someone like me who's always thinking about <laughs> the next mountain to climb. Uh, so my single most important decision was who I married because that's a person with whom I go through all of my life. Uh, and I'm very happy with that decision. That's fantastic. I'm curious, when you when you made that decision... Um, were you, did you have absolute certainty or were you thinking at the time, like, did you have, I guess, 
you know, you were kind of like, okay, let's just go for it. You know, I think it's a big decision. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually had absolute certainty, and maybe your listeners can appreciate this. Uh, my husband, Simon, is the first person I dated for, with whom it was just easy. Like the absence of anxiety was how I knew. I was like, oh, like I don't feel anxious. I don't worry that he's never going to call when he, you know, he's not going to call when he says he's going to call. He just did everything that he said he was going to do. And you, you and I both know how much peace comes from that when people just, you know. Who they are and what they say and what they do are all the same thing. And my husband is uh, is like that. So the absence of drama was how I knew it was him. I like this. Um, this is- and then we rolled fast. And then we rolled fast because I was. I think we were both like, well, we could do this in a year and a half or we could do it in three years. And so from the day we met to the day we got married was, I think, one year and nine months. That's fantastic. It's a very romantic episode of FOMO Sapiens, everybody. <laughs> 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 now, you you just mentioned you've done a lot of things. So you founded a company, Yodely, that went public. Mm-hmm. You founded mm-hmm. another, Joyous, that you describe in your book as a disappointment. You're the president mm-hmm. of StubHub, which we've all used StubHub over the years. Incredible journey. These are all very different things. And so I guess just mm-hmm. to start out, you know, being the FOMO sapiens you are, how do you decide what things you're going to run after? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I always say to people, my, the through line in my career doesn't feel obvious, mm-hmm. but the things I've always ran ran after are big opportunities um, to learn and have impact faster and big opportunities to build. So, you know, build, have impact for me, go together. Um, and so I think I've been an impact in building chaser. Does that make sense? Not building in the traditional sense. And if you look at my whole career, outside of the start, investment banking, um, from probably the time I was 27, I came to the Valley thinking, I want to I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't know how. And even the switch to Google, like, I didn't want to go to Google, but Google called me up and said, we need to build a new product in a category like local and maps. And then in within Google, like they, you know, somebody dangled another shiny penny in front of me. They're like, well, now we need to go build the international business. Um, So always like, yes, my book's about choosing possibility, but I think I've always been chasing the possibility and chasing literally the building of the possibility, that specific phase. A lot of times with people, when they look at careers like yours where you've you've done really well, they just assume everything's like up and to the right, but it's not like that. And it's, there's, it's a very jagged series of lines up and downs, right? It's just how life is. But I'm curious if you, have you noticed that there's any sort of trends in terms of the things that work versus the things that didn't work? Like, was there something consistent or was it always a different reason why things didn't go the way you wanted them to go? Well, um, the good news for you is, and I know we're going to get to a little later, I wrote a whole book on this Mm -hmm. because I think that it's, I think any one choice defies pattern. But I think when strung together, you can see patterns among your choices and even patterns among your risk, your risk taking. And obviously, that's why I wrote a book about how to be a smart risk taker. Uh, so I think the patterns in my career, everything that succeeded involved what I call great who's. I mean, people who I went to go work for um, or work with that were kind of, I was attracted to them because they, they were different than me. They were really smart. And uh, in hindsight, I would say their values overlapped. Like from the moment I met them, I was like, oh, I would love to be in a room with this person. I would love to be able to learn from this person. I'd be able to love to be able to work with this person. So I'd say the through line of great experiences have been the who, um, qualified by diverse strengths, um, incredibly capable, similar values. Um, the other things that have worked, and again, I kind of talk a little bit about this in the book, um, when you have tailwinds, like we often think that success is about ourselves and our own execution. 
Um, and it's so interesting that 20 years, you know, 25 years into my career, I've come to forgive myself for the things I could not just will into succeeding, like just by sheer output, you know, um, because sometimes you can't bend everything to your will, but what you can do is identify tailwinds, identify headwinds and do your best to respond. So I've had some incredible tailwinds in my career, you know, like coming to Silicon Valley in 1997, turns out that's a really good time. <laughs> Lots of opportunities to succeed. If one doesn't work, there'll be another opportunity right around the corner. Um, so I think tailwinds have been, you know, uh, a real help to my career. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. Now you, in early in the book, you talk about the we, this notion of ditching the hero's journey. And I like that concept because... In, especially in entrepreneurship, the hero's journey is like, I mean, it's a marketing tool. It's like, oh, started this company, you know, six months later, I'm living in a tent, you know, in Berkeley, you know, eating like, you know, out of the trash cans. And now I'm a billionaire because, you know, I did things the right way, which is so, it's so unhealthy to sell people that mm -hmm. kind of that version yeah, it's so nasty so talk about that because that i really like that you kind of you know you jump into that right away well thank you i think well first of all you said something earlier that's uh, you know undeniably true which is any journey to success is kind of a jagged journey right mm -hmm. and like you can tell people that and they kind of get it but everything we celebrate in the media is the end point so when you celebrate the early decision and then the end point you sort of skip all the decisions in between right so this is what creates this hero's journey but when you're living it it's it's jagged but more importantly as i said you can't predict you know what a single choice is going to do so you have to keep sort of laying choices i know it sounds so obvious but you're laying risks of different sizes right every kind of uncertain thing you're pursuing is is a risk tiny or big and you're just always in pursuit of the learning the success or the next choice like if you're like god if this doesn't succeed can it just give me the learning to make the next choice and so you're you become an expert choice maker um and i think that um I will say to people, if you want to choose once, because the hero's journey has taught you that choosing once is the way you find success, you make one perfect decision. By the way, I'd call that the riskiest move of all. Like literally, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, deciding you're going to enter the major leagues and going to the plate once and saying, I'm going to hit a home run. Like, really? Is that how you mm -hmm. become an expert baseball player? No, you like, you know, you go to like, 
10,000 at-bats, right? If Malcolm Gladwell's like um, kind of thesis can be applied to choices, it probably can, you know? And then you play the odds and the probabilities. And one of those, you know, 10% of the time you might hit a home run of your 300% of, you know, three, three out of every 10 bats where you actually get a hit. So first of all, 70% of the time there's nothing. And then of the three out of 10 where you get a hit, which as you know is a good stat for a baseball player, mm-hmm. maybe 10% of the time you're hitting within that percentage a home run. But it doesn't matter, right? Because you kind of keep swinging um, and you understand that swinging actually makes you smarter for the next swing. So that is the, I think that is the core thesis that the book tries to debunk early because to your point, like if that's all you have to say, I'm not sure you can write a book. After that, people are like, okay, well, how, how? Okay, you can tell me to debunk this, but what do I replace this with in terms of practices? Yeah, so let's get into that because one of the things that I talk about is FOBO, fear of a better option. It's the other foe. And it's the idea mm-hmm. that it's, this is really specifically a problem. The more options you have, the more mm-hmm. affluence you have. It's like, well, I... I want to make the perfect decision and this is important. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to try to like assess it and assess it and assess it till I have, you know, the riskless decision. And, you know, I can do that because people want me. And what happens to people when they are sort of advancing in their careers is they become so obsessed with optimization that they don't make yes. the choice to make the choice to because then you, one choice leads to another, as you said, like there is no one big yes. choice. So how do people get out of the mindset of like, I've got to get this perfect. I've got to optimize. Well, I think there are a couple of things and you kind of noted this. First of all, the one thing that works against optimization, even if you think you're a really smart risk taker, is time. Mm-hmm. So there is an opportunity cost of time, right? And I think that when people are optimizing and optimizing, a bunch of choices will just disappear through your optimization. So I would say to people, I want to be a smart risk taker on big choices. I, of course, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm laying out all my choices. I'm doing that right now because I'm, you know, unemployed post StubHub and thinking about what I want to do next. But I think a time frame is pretty critical because I think if you don't set a time frame, two things will happen. Number one, a bunch of choices you think are there will expire. Um, and number two, you will end up in that kind of analysis paralysis, right? And meanwhile, um, ironically, you know, uh, you don't have to worry about your skills declining and call it a year or two, but you could sit here and just optimize and optimize. And, you know, it's particularly in the worlds in which we live that are tech oriented, you know, so much changes every 24 to 36 months that there's a cost to even just staying still and doing nothing. Um, so I think the I think the one thing to remind yourself of, of is we think there's no opportunity cost of time. And there is often options go away. Um, and like I said, there's a cost to staying still as everybody else is advancing their knowledge. Um, having said that, I am a big fan of being a smart risk taker. So to me, I'm trying to constrain my optimization. Um, and, uh, and as you said, the, the real enemy here is people want to be perfect. And if you're perfect, you, you know, your real risk is you never choose. And so I'm curious, do you think that the culture of optimization is higher in a place like Silicon Valley where people are like building products to optimize for our lives? And at the same time, there's so much happening and so much opportunity that you can sort of feel like the world is your oyster. Yeah, look, I, here's what I believe about optimization. I mean, the thesis of the book is you want to optimize your choices, then you want to move because guess what happens after you make a choice? Oh, you actually have to optimize the next five choices. Mm-hmm. So to some degree, I'm actually obviously a core believer in optimization, but I think there's, you, you mentioned one important construct, optimizing, optimizing, optimizing the first choice versus getting into a feedback loop. Which, you know, which is sort of like optimizing every next choice with a little bit more data. I'm much more fan of the latter than the former. And I think, you know, and so I think that Silicon Valley has trained us to optimize products, to your point. 
Um, it hasn't really trained people to optimize their careers. I think what it's trained people to believe is far more this kind of hero's journey view. And so people are trying to optimize the first choice. And I'm like, no, no, just get into a cycle of optimizing the outcomes of every choice you make. And I think that's really different, right? Like when we say, hey, I've made a choice. My job now is to optimize the outcome. Optimize how do we get to result? Okay. And then that allows me to sort of make the next choice. So I am I do think Silicon Valley is an optimization optimization culture, but ironically, I'm not sure that it teaches people to optimize the thing that matters, which is the choice you've already made. Now you have five more optimizations to go to make that choice really work. So stop obsessing about making the first choice. Get into a feedback loop, which on whatever choice you've made, you know, you're now not trying to drive an outcome. I always say drive a smaller outcome or drive a learning and then just be in that. And, and that's how you know. That's how the big rewards pile up anyway. I'm like, there is no big reward without piling up a bunch of small outcomes. Like it, it does, just doesn't happen. And that is all the process of kind of optimizing. But I call that optimizing or impact. You know, it's a different kind of optimization. I'm like, stop trying to make the perfect choice. How about optimizing your impact on every choice made and then unlock the next choice? I like that. That's a really helpful mindset shift. So, you know, what I'm hearing from you is people think that, you know, they have to make one decision right to move forward. You're saying, no, there's lots of decisions. And by the way, making decision isn't the solution to the problem. Making decision is gets you to the point where then you need to work, which makes a lot of sense. (laughs) If you think, if you just think back on your life, it's like, okay, when you're a lot of times, especially it's like you make decisions and yeah, you weigh them or whatever, but the decision is like a three day thing. And then it's like the next three years is when you is right. It's all optimizing. It's all choices to optimize the decision you made. So this is the irony. I think people wait, like they work so hard, you know, to make this perfect first move. And to your point, you're like, well, wait, all the yield is when whatever choice you made, optimize the crap out of it by every day going to work and making the small choices that unlock impact. So those are different kinds of risks, right? Those are the execution risks we take to try and, you know, create impact where we are. But that's how you're going to get the yield for the original choice anyway. So yes, it's about optimizing your output, not optimize your choice making. And when people substitute, oh, I'm, I made a great choice, I'm done. I'm like, no, actually, you're just getting started. So this is why obsessing about the great choice is not that helpful. Like, you get there, be as smart as you can, and then then the real work begins, as you and I both know. So I have to say that my favorite chapter of the book is chapter five. Do you mm-hmm. know why? Why? <laughs> because it's about FOMO. It's the oh, FOMO yes, of chapter. course. FOMO versus fear, of course, the universal risk equation. I should have guessed given the title of this podcast. I mean, I can't hold back and, and just and loving that chapter. So I like that. I, I mean, thank you for putting in the book. So talk about that because that's what you get into the fact that there's this equation and, and that action is on the other end of the equation. So unpack that for us. Sure, sure. I think what you're referencing is in the book, there's uh, what I call the universal risk equation because when people sort of look at those who are action-oriented, they presume they're fearless. And I'm like, no, they're not actually fearless. They're just managing two fears pretty in a pretty sophisticated way. Their FOMO, their fear of missing out, which of course, aptly uh, named for this uh, podcast, and their fear of failure, what I call FOF. And so uh, the core thesis is if your FOMO is bigger than your fear of failure, you'll act, right? Like if your fear of missing out is bigger than your fear of failure, you'll act. And if your fear of failure is bigger than your FOMO, you won't act. You'll, you'll, you'll stay still. But I think that many people want to just overweight their FOMO. They just want to be like, visualize the positive, visualize the positive. And I'm like, I know many people who are dreamers, don't you? Like, I know lots of people who are dreamers. That doesn't mean they all act. 
what it means is those people who sort of are visualizing the positive but whose fear of failure is still bigger than their FOMO won't act. So for me, this um, the idea is, yes, ramp your FOMO, you know, get excited about the next possibility. But when you want to act, it may be time to go work on that fear of failure equation and really try and pre-mortem the actual fears that, you know, that are kind of haunting you, name them. You know, I feel like there are three risks everyone has. Risk of ego, risk of financial kind of, hap- you know, wealth and, and risk of happiness, you know, what I call personal risk. And so name them, size them. And then what I always say to people is think through the choice after the choice, like literally sit here and say, okay, I make the choice, I fail. How many more choices do I have? And if the answer is you have quite a few options if you fail, you should be sizing down your assessment of that fear because it's just like there are very few what Jeff Bezos would call one-way doors. You go through and you can never come back. There are very few of those. Um, and, we've, and we also find out that a lot of what's holding us back is our ego risk specifically. Do you know what I mean? Like if you switch jobs and let's say the salary is competitive, but it's a startup. I'm like, okay, well, you're not really losing money. So you can't really say it's financial. But this idea that we'd have to like go try it, it doesn't work out. We come, you know, crawling back to our current employer and saying like, oh my goodness, you know, why it didn't work out. But the converse is like we've learned something, you know, we've likely figured out 10 more options for our own career. We've And if we want to come back, we come back. If not, we can go to another company. I mean, these are the types of things we need to size. And so coming all the way back to that universal risk equation, um, yes, I'm a believer in FOMO. I like I drive my own FOMO. But when it comes time to getting into action, I actually switch my gears in my head. And I work pretty hard on pre-morteming all the kind of failure scenarios because it makes me comfortable that if I know there are 10 more choices... I can calm my nerves enough to act. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. So give us an example. I mean, you've moved a bunch of times in your career from, as we talked about before, like take us through how you thought about one of those decisions. Sure. And I'll take you through one that actually where the failure happened. So it was pretty painful. When I was um, at Google, I was 2009 and I made a pretty big right turn in my career. I had risen from at Google from a kind of, you know, uh, individual contributor director to president of a region. Um, and one of the, you know, I don't know, three, four presidents at the company. Um, I was running APAC and LATAM. So I was running a multi-billion dollar business that I had built. Um, and it was very clear at Google I was never going to be CEO, which is fine. None of us were. None of the business leaders were going to be CEO because Larry and Sergey, whenever they would succeed that business, and Eric, they would succeed it likely to a product or engineering leader. And, who, and there was like in 2009, there's no visibility that there's going to be any near-time succession. So if you want to be a CEO, you kind of have to leave, right? You've hit the, your ceiling in terms of role. But I decided I wanted to pivot into e-commerce, and I decided I wanted to be a CEO of a startup. And so there are three decisions in there. Leave Google, okay, 
be a CEO, actually four. Okay, number two, enter e-commerce. I thought e-commerce was going through a next generation of innovation. And this was just the beginning of like Pinterest hadn't started, but the flash sales were starting. Companies that sold goods you want, not need, you know, One King's Lane, Rent the Runway, these are all starting. And I'm like, yeah, there's a resurgent. Like now all of these lifestyle categories are going to come online. Um, And then I picked a company. And the company I picked was Polyvore. It's a very, it was a small, early kind of early shoppable content site. So think it's like harder to use than Pinterest, but an early version of Pinterest. And the founder chased me for three years. I knew the investors. I did all my studying, you know, all of that stuff. I looked at the tailwinds. I said, this is the right move. So I really made four choices in one, right? As I said, leave Google, become a CEO, enter e-commerce, choose a company. Um, and uh, I rated it. By the way, I didn't go right away. I left Google. I said no to Polyvore two times. I parked myself at a venture capital firm. I studied e-commerce for nine months. I had my third child. Like when I say like it was a study choice. And in the end, after looking at everything, I came back to Polyvore. Two years after they first approached me and I said, you're still, and they said, we're, no, no, now we're really going to hire a CEO. We know we've told you this over the last few years, but like we're really going to do it this time. And I joined. And within six months, the founder decided that he didn't like having a CEO at the company and he wanted the title back. And and to be fair, like again, in this pre-morteming, um, even when I went in, I said to uh, my coach, I said, okay, well, the highest risk in any situation like this is founder-CEO dynamics. So I had a game plan with the board. I was like, this is how we're, we're going to roll. Like, you know, the founder can talk to you all day long. I'm not going to try and get in the middle of that relationship. That's just going to make him nervous. But let's just agree that we're going to have, you know, conversations and debrief regularly. Off cycle. I said to my coach, I'm like, what are my strategies? He's, I was like, I'm going to just listen for the first three months. I mean, when I say I tried to articulate and, you know, to your point, plan away every risk, I did. But guess what? It's like a marriage. At six months in, like, you know, the way we operate, the way we lead is differently. Even the way we talk about conflict is different. And so um, the founder went to the board and said, it's Sukinder me. I want to be CEO again. And the board, despite telling me how awesome a job I was doing, really, like literally I could show you emails, um, and also kind of working with me on this, like as I said, for six months, getting the founder comfortable. I remember at one point saying this is like a marriage. If he doesn't want to work, it's not going to work. Um, and at month six, the first time he said, hey, I, I'm not sure this works for me. They were like, okay, sorry, Sukinder. You know, we've chosen. It's him. Um, and it was heartbreaking. It was like I had done every pre-mortem. But the thing I did do in the calculus, and this is sort of my point about you can never you can never think away risk. Risk is risk is risk. But, you know, I negotiated exceptionally heavily going in because I knew that the biggest risk was not that I wouldn't perform. It would that be like, you know, that a founder and CEO just don't get along. That happens all the time in Silicon Valley. So you can bet I had a really good package. Number two, I literally in talking myself into taking the polyvore job, I said to myself, if I fail... Am I unemployable? Does all my Google Google experience, your Yodel experience, my income, does it go away? I sort of bet that I could afford one failure in my career. Now, by the way, I went through it and I can tell you on the other end, I was devastated. I was like, oh my God, no one will ever want to hire me. This is my first CEO job. I failed. Oh my God, it's so visible. Like, I, like people must look at me and think I'm an idiot. I gave away like this amazing job at Google for a 10-person startup and I lost a battle to a founder. Like, it was really, it was pretty soul crushing. But guess what? All that, you know, pre-morteming was true. In fact, uh, Polyvore, the company, sold three years later to Yahoo for $300 million. Um, as a board member said, I got a good amount of what you would call hazard pay for my package. So I, I profited. 
and I'm not ashamed to admit it. My biggest disappointment was I had no impact. I was at the company six months. So it's one time in my career I look back and I'm like, you know what? I literally had no impact. Like, okay, maybe I, you know, I met Katrina Lake at Polyvore and she went on to become the founder of Stitch Fix and I was her first board member and investor. So, okay, I had a lot of impact for Katrina and myself, but literally on the company, right? Did I leave any lasting impression in six months? Other than the turmoil, probably not. So that's a disappointment for me. I hate looking back at my career, even when I fail and say, like, I failed to have any impact. Like, that's even more, you know, disturbing than failing. Um, But my career did sustain the failure. I went on to become an e-commerce investor, entrepreneur, board member. um, And ultimately, I say to people, like, 20 decisions later, it led to StubHub, right? So um, if you paint the first move, it was a fail. If you paint the, you know, the 10 moves through, you know, to the one that succeeded, it looks like a pretty good bet to have made that pivot into e-commerce into being a CEO. So that's sort of an example of the whole thing. You know, pre-morteming, um, I planned for the failure modes. You can plan as much as you want. It's still soul-crushing when it happens. But in fact, it's true. I was employable. People still wanted my experience. You know, um, uh, I was able to recover. I did diversify away sort of some of those risks that I took early on by becoming a board member in e-commerce and investor. I didn't just bet on one thing. Um, and ultimately, I just kept double downing on decisions in the direction of what I was learning in e-commerce. And that turned out to be a good set of choices. That is a masterclass. And what I particularly love about it is the notion. I think people, when they go to a startup, they they sort of like, well, I'm going to a startup. It's just got to be risky. And I just have to suck it up and accept tons and tons of risks. And you just explained to us because you had leverage, because you had done things before that you said, okay, yes, I'm going to take a calculated risk. But if things don't work out, I'm going to have set up for myself a a place where I can land. And it will be, yeah, it stinks. And and by the way, and it stinks when board members aren't courageous and when, you know, people tell you one thing and do another. But if you can walk away with your experience intact and with a nice sort of place to land, then you know, at the end of the day, you can tell the story in a way that I'm, I'm sort of like amazed. So everybody, when you take risk, if you do the work of pre-morteming, which is a word that now I'm going to start using, you can set yourself up so that if things don't go right, it could still be okay. Now you are FOMO sapiens, that's clear, but you're also still human <laughs> and humans can get distracted. So I'd love to know, uh, how do you stay focused? What's your secret to getting things done? Uh, it's remarkably simple, uh, embarrassingly simple, and I'm not even sure effective, but I would say, um, I keep the things I need to get done on a list on my iPhone, literally a running list. I have at any point in time, something like 23 to 50,000 unread messages. People are like, you're so responsive on email. I'm like, (laughs) you know, I'm so responsive on email because I literally ignore three quarters of it because I simply cannot respond. I don't care about emptying my inbox every day. I care about eyeballing it and be like, what do I need to respond Mm -hmm. to? So, um, and I would call myself, you know, maybe 70, 30, meaning I'm 70% like really focused on the big stuff. And 30% of the time, like anybody, I I get distracted because there's always new stuff coming at me, always. And be honest, I like live with, I love ideas. I love possibility. Like, you know, you can get me excited about something pretty easily. Um, but I think that I have like this, you know, I just keep a list on my phone and then I go back and check it. I'm like, okay, did I roughly get this done? So I always say to people, I have a whiteboard, like a rough plan. And I kind of, as long as I'm checking against it, like, okay, am I still on track? Am I 70% of the time, you know, working towards the things that are important or 80% of the time? Um, then I think like all the other noise and distraction, like get somehow squeezed into that 20%. That's what I mean about not answering every email. 
All right, the book is Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive. Even when you fail, you can find out more and take a special quiz about risk-taking that is not in the book at choosepossibility.com, where you can also, of course, buy the book there or at Amazon. Sukinder Singh Cassidy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Patrick, for having me. FOMO. Can't get enough of FOMO Sapiens? Join me on Patreon for ad-free episodes, bonus material, and exclusive content that will help you to master FOMO and position yourself for greater success in both business and life. Go to patreon.com slash FOMO Sapiens to learn more. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I love hearing from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.